Hello, Sarah. Hello, Kim. I would say how's it going, but we, we've been chatting for a little while. We have been, yes. <laughs> I feel like we haven't caught up for a little while. Things have been so busy. And the last time we recorded was with the fantastic Jean Leggett, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's been a little while. It has. So we're I, think back. We're, I think we're pretty good, but really busy at sound, at, from our previous conversation. Yes. And so we're back with some kind of like bits and bobs and not catch up, catch up, not like Heinz, but like catching up. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I brought something that is making my brain explode. I don't know if you have as well. Oh, well, let's hear it. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's a lengthier one. So we'll get caught up first. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what's going on with you? Well, I feel like I've finally got into a rhythm at school with uh, my EDD program. And uh, so haven't had, had to have any all-nighters, which for me is 9 p.m. <laughs> that is way too late. That's all night. <laughs> it certainly is for me. It certainly is for me. But what I'm, I'm really enjoying that I'm able to connect this learning and this program with things that I want to be doing anyway, mm. which it, it's very gratifying because one of the reasons I wanted to take the time to do this full time is so that I could do some research about, you know, tech girls and computer science for all and things that I've been passionate about anyway, but really understand what is going on out there besides just the bubble that I was in. Yeah. So that's been really great. And I'm really, you know, tech girls right now is kind of on um, hiatus because of the pandemic. Yeah. We did have a really successful Biomed Tech Girls program, which we talked about on this program. And we experimented with Girls Geek Day online. But the middle school program has always been an issue. Uh, it just has never gained traction in whatever form we've done it. Oh, so interesting. We, yeah, so we've tried hosting Girls Who Code Clubs, which are, uh, it's, that's a national program and they provide the curriculum. You just have to get volunteers, but it's like 10 to 12 weeks long. Wow. You have to meet every week for an hour and a half. And so, you know, that's a lot of time to commit to for participants mm -hmm. as well as volunteers. So we had, you know, good participation for the few that could be part of it. But again, it just felt like it was too limiting. And the thing that we tried right before the pandemic was something I was calling Yes We Tech, where we would go to like a little mini tech tour. That's something, you know, that we do in Charlottesville. We go and visit a tech company and get behind the scenes and have, you know, role models and mentors share what they do and why they do it and what was their path to getting there and some fun activities and food. And, you know, that's always popular. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that, that was actually uh, going really well. And, but again, there were some lim limitations with it as far as, you know, who could get there, the timing of it, uh, things like that. And obviously now we can't even, you know, do that and try to figure out how to tweak that program. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm doing when my instructional design course is thinking about how do we train volunteers to work specifically with middle school girls on delivering content that they're passionate about. So, you know, we have all these volunteers who want to do something and we can try to do something in the online space, but we've never actually like trained up our volunteers in yeah. um, any way we kind of were like, Hey, here you go. So it's been really good to think about, think things through much more carefully and try to develop something that 
isn't like just like a stopgap measure, which is what I felt I was, you know, I was constantly just, oh, let's try this, let's try this. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't really ever able to are, yeah. reflect and go, okay, what worked it, what didn't work, what do we need to do? So I'm excited about that. It is a little, you know, frustrating because I want to do something right now, but I know I need to take the time. So look for something in the new year. Um, hopefully January will be this work will have paid off and be something. Middle school is so uniquely challenging because I feel like in elementary school, if you're not a super content specialist, you can get by on, you know, excitement and love and connection building with kids. Right. Which is what we do for Girls Geek Day. Yes. In high school, if you're not super great at talking to kids, you can get by by being a content area specialist. The kids are, by then they found their passions. They've, they've kind of dived, dived in, dove in, dove, dove in. (laughs) they're involved deeply enough that they're willing to forgive if you're awkward, if you really, really love the subject you're teaching. But middle school is right in the middle. They need that love and enthusiasm of small children. And they have, if you'll pardon my French, just excellent bullshit detectors. Like if you are trying to teach them something that you're, and pretending you're an expert when you're not, they will smell it a mile away and shut you down. So you have to have the mix of like charisma and expertise that's really hard to come by in order to teach middle school. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, with the high school program, we spend a lot of time planning that one week. So that is a much more intentional effort Mm -hmm. than anything else that we do. So it's, it's, uh, but we only do it for one week. So, you know, so we need something that's not just one week like that and is not like Girls Geek Day where we're really just trying to spark that interest, but some somewhere in between where we can help volunteers feel more comfortable about, you know, sort of the expectations. What should they expect? What what can they get through in the time period? How can they comport themselves that will best appeal to this population? So yeah. That all that's so it's easy. So yeah. solvable. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> what about you? What what what's your latest? I also am settling in and finding a rhythm. If you are not a regular listener, Kim and I worked at the same school for four four years, five years, for a while, years. I worked six years. (laughs) And both (laughs) left that school this year to pursue new adventures and new opportunities. And I have to say my transition, you know, it's hard. I've been a librarian for my whole career and switching to a kind of a leadership administrative coordinator role was, was a bit of a bumpy landing. But now I think I can pretty confidently say that I'm enjoying it. It's a lot of putting puzzle pieces in order, which I really like. It's a lot of supporting teachers. And that is, it's, it's a real honor and it's exciting to be able to do that. It's supporting kids and families, which I love. I spoke in an earlier podcast about how I get to do a lot of listening and social emotional work and building connections. And and I'm really enjoying that. My days are starting to have a little bit of a pattern, which means that I can sleep a little better and plan a little better, which is really nice. And I think the most important part is that I'm, I'm building real relationships with my coworkers. I had been at my past school for years and loved so many of the people that I worked with. And so transitioning to a new school is, is a challenge. And this is not the easiest year to make friends because of physical distancing and face coverings and schools in cohorts and all of that. And so I, I feel more like I'm part of the team and part of the family and I'm making friends and that makes a big difference. So I'm enjoying the challenge and also settling in, which, and along with that means I have a little more time to do things I want to do. It's no longer 
if I don't put 14 hours a day into the job, the boat sinks. <laughs> now it's like, I can work and I can also remember that I can talk to this person on the phone and take a walk and I can cook something. And that's a, that's a really nice place to be. And it's a privilege because I know that for so many teachers that are struggling to survive running a hybrid model or attempting to recreate instruction online, they have not found that space to remember that they're human beings and not just job titles. And so I'm very thankful to be where I am and, and to feel like I can breathe a little bit. Yeah, that making connections right now is really challenging in a new environment. My classes are all asynchronous. So the connections really have to happen when we're teamed up with different partners to do projects. And luckily they had a, um, like a meet and greet when we first started and kind of randomly put people together. And two women uh, and I met there and we now check in each with each other every Monday, you know, just oh, to that's see how awesome. things are going. And it's been a really nice connection. Also, I'm TAing uh, Jenny Chu's Designing Games for Learning class. And that's a synchronous class. So at least twice a week, I get to be with her and with other students and, you know, help plan that. And so that's nice to have that connection as well. Oh, yeah. And then I've, you know, still got my connection online. So this past week, I've talked to Sue Adams, who I met when I worked on uh, MozFest in 2016, and we created that really, a really cool space at this festival in London that was about demystifying the web. And she and I are like twins in different places. So, you know, oh, cool. talking to, it's really cool. So talking There's to another her, Kim! I know. <laughs> uh, and she likes, you know, doing her hair different colors sometimes too. But she has started her own consulting business, which is going out and bringing physical computing, especially to after-school programs, in-school programs, whatnot. And I had her show her camera around her space. And it looks so much like mine <laughs> because we have this <laughs> racks and racks of all this equipment. And we're lamenting about how, you know, it's really challenging right now to be able to do stuff during the pandemic, but she's done a, a lot of amazing work even with it. And so it's just very inspiring to be able, able to connect with her and to use this excuse. So she's going to, she designed a game with a librarian and they're going to come talk about it to this uh, group of students. And then cool. another assignment I had was to find a teacher leader that inspires me that I look up to. And I decided, you know what, this is a great opportunity to meet somebody that I've been following on Twitter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I narrowed down my list and I got to meet with Kim Clark this past week. And she is really amazing. She also does a lot of stuff with girls in computer science and kind of started her journey with uh, doing technology, educational technology type stuff. And she's still working full time in schools, plus doing, you know, her girls in tech work on the side which is very familiar story. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but she's doing it in Texas. And so she's actually going to be the keynote at Visti this year. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I think both of them, I'm like, oh, we got to get them on the podcast. So I'm going to be reaching out again and <laughs> seeing if we can get them on the podcast. But just knowing that, you know, you don't have to feel, if you're feeling isolated right now, um, there are ways to make connections and even, you know, that don't have to be limited by even your current address. 
Mm -hmm. I, I see it in my students, especially my older students that are learning from home. You know, they miss their friends. They miss the hustle and the bustle and they miss the connection. And in my first two weeks with them, I had planned to do live lunches every day and office hours every afternoon so they could log on if they needed a little extra FaceTime or if they had questions. And they've just become such a bright spot for everyone. And our little cohort has become a, a family and I look forward to them every day and we share riddles and we do challenges and people, they bring things. And they're like, I found this yesterday because I knew we needed something new to do today. For my middle schoolers, next week is going to be Hamilton week at lunch. Mm. We're planning a book club. And so just finding connection wherever you can grab it is, I'm glad to be able to do that. And now I want a fake assignment so I can reach out to someone on Twitter and make them talk to me. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> you don't need a fake assignment. That sounds, that sounds pretty great. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> so now are we ready for the uh, brain explosion when we were planning for this podcast, Kim said, well, do you want to bring something that made your brain explode? Do you have anything? And I was like, do I have anything? Always. So this week, I have been thinking a lot about banned books week. So in the library and book selling world, this is a huge, huge event. And I write and post and think about it a lot every year. And this year I wrote and shared and a friend commented on my Facebook post which was a link to a blog post I'd written. And she shared, I didn't know books were still banned and challenged. And that made my brain explode. It is such a big part of my world. And I had a, an experience professionally a few years ago with a book challenge that really shook me to my core and changed my entire career trajectory. It reshaped my personal values. It, it was at the time something that was really difficult that now I feel really grateful for. And so it's, it's an issue that is so near and dear to my heart and looms so large in my world year round that the idea that other people were not aware of it just really blew my mind. So I thought I'd take a few minutes to talk about Banned Books Week, if that's okay. I think that's great. Uh, and I think you just sold why there is a Banned Books Week. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, are you familiar with Banned Books Week? Yes, I have. I have heard about it, but I haven't, okay. you know, really kept track of, I, I'm curious, like what sort of the progression of the banned books has been. Mm -hmm. well, here we go. Let's, let's dive in. <laughs> From the American Library Association, it says Banned Books Week is an annual event celebrating the freedom to read. Typically held during the last week of September, it spotlights current and historical attempts to censor books in libraries and schools. It brings together the entire book community, librarians, booksellers, publishers, journalists, teachers, and readers of all types in shared support of the freedom to seek and express ideas, even those that some consider unorthodox or unpopular. So the official Banned Books Week was launched in the 1980s, which the American Library Association describes as a time of increased challenges, organized protests, and the Island Trees School District versus Pico Supreme Court case which ruled that school officials can't ban books in libraries simply because of their content. And the definition of a ban is a removal of materials or cancellation of services based on content. And a challenge is an attempt to remove or restrict materials or services based on content. So it generally starts with a challenge. A reader or a community member goes to what is most often a public or a school library and says, hey, I don't appreciate this book. I don't think it's appropriate. I think it should be removed from the collection. And a key thing to note is they don't just say, I didn't like it. I don't want to read it again. They say, I didn't like it. And I don't think anyone should be able to read it. 
And for me, that's where the line is drawn. Not every book is for every reader. Not every story is for every family. I absolutely respect that. But there is a line between, I don't like this book. I'm not going to read it. Or that's not a book we read in our house versus this book should not be available for any of the readers that patronize this library or bookstore. So the American Booksellers Association featured a display of 500 frequently challenged books in padlocked cages labeled as dangerous in 1982, and that kind of sparked things. So the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom teamed up with the American Booksellers Association and the National Association of College Stores and put together a news release and a publicity kit to spark conversation that year to see if they could get banned books week off the ground. And uh, surprise, surprise, (laughs) I think it blew up pretty quickly. There are a lot of people that are very interested in the issue of censorship and it has just grown. And today, Banned Books Week reaches an estimated 2.8 billion readers. And it is talked about a lot in school and public libraries and bookstores. So those are kind of the three main, I think, tenants who are keeping it going. And it's talked about on PBS and NPR and giant national news networks. And what I'm always surprised to find is that if you are not living within the literary world, not everybody knows that books are still challenged and banned. And it happens every single day. Yeah, I think especially if you have a child or you're a teacher or librarian, you're Mm -hmm. more familiar with it. I know that um, when we were reading Harry Potter with Xander, Mm -hmm. you know, that that was under scrutiny at some point because that came up as a thing. And I remember that. I'm like, what? That's one of the most uh, frequently challenged children books of all time. You know, banning and challenging books has found a unique home in children's literature and in children's literature circles and the establishments that provide children's literature to children and families. And so I have a list of some of the most frequently challenged children's books and Harry Potter is right at the top. Um, really? The Giver, wow. oh yeah. The Giver, A Wrinkle in Time, oh The Watsons Go to Birmingham. And a few, there's a lot of books that have to do with growing up and getting to know your body. Like what's happening to my body, a growing up guide. There's one for boys and girls. There's Sex is a Funny Word. More recently, I Am Jazz, a picture book, has been widely banned and challenged, and Tango Makes Three. And so those are some more historically banned and challenged books. And I do want to take a moment to say that as an educator, I love and respect families. I love and respect parents. I understand that every family comes from a different place, and every adult has the right and the responsibility to help their reader find what's best for them. So I will never challenge or push a parent who says, my kid is not ready for this, or this isn't something we're going to read. Nobody knows your reader and your family like you do. That is your decision to make. And I think a lot of challenges and bans do come from a place of fear of not knowing how to talk about something. Conversations can be really difficult. I think with social media and news, it's harder to keep children, I don't want to use the word innocent um, because that's fraught, but to keep children from growing up quickly and from learning things about the world around them that maybe when you and I were young, we were shielded from for a little bit longer. Right. Well, before they're ready to fully understand it, right? Or before their parents think they're ready, which is, right. you know, right. which is accepted. That's one of the big challenges of being a parent. And I think a really particularly challenging thing right now is that parents are having to figure out how to talk about things that they were not talked to about as children. So there's no guidebook and there's no map 
and you can't remember the talk that your dad had with you because he didn't. And so it, it's definitely scary. It's, it's parents who love and respect and want to protect their children. And I think it has the unintended consequence of impacting the careers of educators and librarians and authors and having books that kids really need access to taken away from them so they don't, they're, they're not able to get to them. You know, this year, there's a quote here from Mike Rawls, who is big in the uh, school library world, like a school library rock star. Um, he, goes, he goes by the name The Book Wrangler. And he said in a post on his Instagram page this week, books are banned for all kinds of reasons, but eight out of 10 books on the American Library Association's most challenged books of 2019 had one thing in common, LGBTQIA plus content. When you challenge, ban, or censor books with LGBTQIA plus content, you are challenging, banning, and censoring someone's identity, including my own. Representation matters. And remember, you might not want your child to read these books, but you shouldn't get to dictate if they're available to everyone else. And that has been a growing trend, at least throughout my career. Challenged and banned books are becoming more and more related to LGBTQIA plus content. And so books that feature gay families, families with same-sex parents, books that include gender identities that are not considered traditional or that explain to children different gender identities or, or the ways that they might explore a new identity, those are topping the lists more than ever. One of the, I, I've read almost every book in the top 10 this year, actually, uh, George by Alex Gino, Beyond Magenta, Transgender Teens Speak Out, uh, I Am Jazz, Prince and Knight, and Tango Makes Three, Drama by Raina Telgemeier. Almost all of these books are on this list because they deal with what some consider sexual content and some consider exploration of identity. And I absolutely agree with Mike Rawls that children are watching and they are listening to everything we say. And when we challenge or ban or remove a book, we're saying that the identity that is represented within that book is not appropriate and it's not okay. And those ideas become the foundation of kids' realities. If you used to love a book about a prince falling in love with a knight, and then your mom says you can't read it because it's inappropriate, a prince falling in love with a knight is inappropriate, and that becomes a brick in your foundation. And it's hard to overcome that if that's what you've been taught. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. It reminds me of one of the exercises that we had to do for our research, you know, what we're going to be researching. I showed this to you before, <laughs> before we started recording, but I have this concise guide to APA style, which, you know, sounds very dry and boring and whatnot. <laughs> but we actually had to go through, there is a whole section on bias-free language guidelines. Ooh. And the sections on gender and identity and sex and uh, all that are very detailed and very much acknowledging that this is all changing, but you need to do the right thing. <laughs> like I, I love that. Very, I was very happy to see that there was so much about that in this guide for how you, everybody should be writing their research. So there is some bright spot. I love that. What an unexpected place to find right? <laughs> pushback <laughs> on censorship. But it's true. I was sending a coworker and a friend some articles about the use of the singular they. She was saying, I, d I don't really understand it yet. I'm on board. I want to support everybody, but I don't get it. 
And the most compelling articles that I found that gave the history of the singular they, and it was about its context and history and the way it's used now. And the best resources that I found were from Merriam-Webster and the Oxford Dictionary. You know, I think language nerds are speaking up and saying, actually, it's fine. Yeah, APA says use it. Yeah, the dictionary doesn't have a problem with it. If you do, maybe like look a little deeper as to where that issue is coming from. Yeah, and and researching this area, one of the articles we read was about when it actually changed from using he everywhere. So that was in 1982. Wow, what 1982 was a year, man. That is fascinating. I know. Another thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that these, the big challenges, the top 10, the really splashy, having them move from massive public library systems, getting them pulled from school districts, those get a lot of attention and they are really dangerous and important. But what has come to scare me more is the soft censorship that takes place every single day. It's very quiet and it's very polite and it's very easy to miss if you don't know what you're looking for. It is the book that the administrator just decides to keep in their office and to tell the librarian that they're thinking about it after a parent complained and then they just never give it back or (laughs) the editing of the order list for the classroom because no one wants to deal with the conversation that's going to pop up if that book is taught or when you ask to do a book club and somebody says you know it's really just not the right time I don't want to deal with it or an author visit that is canceled because the book is pushed back on you know it's 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 rarely a fight and if you are the person who is on the receiving end of it, you kind of think and go, am I, am I imagining it? Or is this <laughs> happening with a lot of my books with diverse characters? This sounds like a lot like implicit bias. Oh, where, you know, I, banned books are very explicit and you know that that's wrong. But when it's implicit, it's like, yeah, you start, is it me? Oh, you are so, it's, it's a little bit gaslighty. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I've run across that a lot in my time. It's like, well, did I really just watch him throw that book in the garbage can? That's not okay, right? Did anybody else see that? And it's intent versus impact. It's very rarely, this book is dangerous. I want to get it away. It's, I just don't have time to deal with this conflict. Or like, wouldn't it be easier if we just did a book club about a dog? And <laughs> I have come to realize that I, I feel very strongly that censorship, specifically in children's literature, is never okay, full stop. Every single story deserves to be told. It will not fit every reader, but any library that I run, there's a space for all of them and there's a reader for all of them. And that is something I think about during Banned Books Week and the next week and the week after and (laughs) all of the weeks because it doesn't go away. And I believe that schools and families should have relationships that make difficult conversations possible and that schools and libraries can provide resources that make conversations less scary and support families and saying, hey, your kid's really interested in this book. It's probably really scary to read it. We're having a town hall where we talk about the language they're going to be using, or we're having a parent book club where we read the book together. And then when you read it with your kid, you'll know what to talk about. Or if it feels weird, like let's set up a group where you can discuss it. It, If we work together and it becomes less scary, so many of these things come from a place of fear or isolation or just not knowing what to do. And it takes a village to raise the child. And sometimes it takes a village to build the context that your kid needs to become a good human. And there's nothing wrong with reaching out and working together. And on our resource page, I'm going to share three blog posts from three authors that I really admire who have had this kind of soft censorship 
impact their careers. Phil Bildner, who wrote the brilliant High Five for Glenn Burke, which is the new middle grade novel that came out this year, and the way he's experienced schools canceling on him at the last minute or asking him to censor what he discusses in class because of the LGBTQIA plus content in some of his books. Kate Messner wrote another really brilliant middle grade novel called The Seventh Wish about a girl who has a sibling who is struggling with addiction, who is in high school. And it is a fantastic book that I think every kid should read. And she faced a lot of soft censorship from schools and bookstores when that was released. And K.A. Holt, who has multiple middle grade and young adult books that kids just love, who has seen some pushback because when kids ask her about her personal life at meetings or at sp when she's speaking, she talks openly about her wife. And not all schools are willing to let her speak to their student body after that. And so they've all been very brave and spoken up about their experiences and the way it's impacted their professional careers and their personal lives. Those are three blog posts that are fantastic. So I'll put them in our resource page, as well as a link to some information about 2020 Banned Books Week from the American Library Association. I'll post the page where I found the history of Banned Books Week. And uh, hopefully it's something that other people are interested in too, because the more of us that know book censorship is very alive, it is happening right now. And the more people who request books and check out books and, you know, libraries go off of what their patrons say. So if two people challenge a book, but 50 people request it, you go with the majority, you know, libraries have got to survive. They've got to have their funding. So show a little bit of love at your bookstores and your libraries and your schools and let them know that stories are meant to be shared. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. No, I'm not sorry. <laughs> no, it was great, uh, but a lot to take in. So I think we could probably wrap things up. Absolutely. Okay. Um, any parting thought? Read a banned book. Ooh. Give it a try. Tell me there about it. There you go. Tweet to us or, or talk to us on Instagram. Yes. Read Challenge something down. <laughs> tell me, tell me what you think. I'll read it with you. Let me know what you're reading. All right. That sounds <laughs> How about great. you? Any closing messages from you? We just want to be able to talk to some other people. So we're looking for, <laughs> I mean, please, I love you, Sarah, talk to but us. we're going to run out of things to talk about. Well, maybe not, but <sighs> we love hearing from other people about yes. what you're doing and, you know, whether it's a challenge or a success or whatever, we'd love to hear from you. So let us know if you'd like to join us sometime. We'd love to host you. Until next time. Tech, love, and happiness.